Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'll be your host. On More Than Politics, we'll be thinking a little bigger than the current news cycle. We'll talk about the issues of the day, yes, but we'll also discuss the issues that lie beneath our political discourse, the ones that drive our divisions, feed our misunderstandings of one another, and loom over our future. Moreover, we'll discuss the discourse itself, the language we use, the way we go about doing politics, whether we're talking about political professionals at the national level or political amateurs like you and me right here at home. And most importantly, we'll be considering all of these issues in the context of our moral lives and therefore also our religious convictions. Each week on More Than Politics, I'll be featuring a political conversation with one of the most interesting people I know, and later, some of the most interesting people I don't. Some weeks, we'll be trying to put today's politics in context. Some weeks, we'll be exploring the issues of the day. And some weeks, we'll be focusing on the discourse. But for this week, for our first episode, I'd like to start by telling you about myself and my plans for this podcast. I'm going to tell you how my personal and professional backgrounds have brought me to this point, and I'm going to tell you something about the ideas that guide my political thought. Let's get started. First, for my background. I come from a very Republican, very politically active family in Maryland. My grandfather held public office and my family helped with his campaigns, so I grew up surrounded by the trappings and talk of political life. And I loved it. Politics has always appealed to me from the time I was a child. But did you catch that we're from Maryland? Maryland, such a solidly blue state that Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one? Right, that one. So while I grew up heavily influenced by conservative Republican ideology, I never saw that way of thinking as common. I always knew we were surrounded by people who disagreed with us. Our friends, classmates, neighbors, farther-flung family members people we loved, people we disagreed with and loved all at the same time. Looking back, that feels important to me. I also come from a Catholic family, more politically devout than religiously devout, but connected to the great tradition of Catholicism in Maryland. Maryland was the only one of the 13 English colonies to be founded by Catholics. We've got some fascinating Catholic history here. Since my teenage years, I have been drawn to the Catholic Church in a way that cannot be explained by my pretty secular upbringing. I know deep down that it, though imperfect, points to truth and to the ultimate goodness. Also since my teenage years, I have felt called to connect my faith to my interest in politics. This feeling, this calling, was first nurtured in my public school years, among my non-Catholic friends, with whom I engaged in lively rounds of political and moral debate. It grew while I was at my Catholic college, where I was surrounded for the first time by students, seminarians, and professors who were knowledgeable about the faith and eager to share it. There I studied political science, and I came to understand and deeply love my faith. Come my senior year, I wrote my honors thesis on The American Catholic and the Two Political Parties. 
It described the history of American and Catholic political thought and explained why Catholic teaching conforms to neither of the two major American political parties. After college, I moved to Washington, D.C. to work a federal government job that was neither political nor religious enough to hold my interest. But after a few years there, I returned to Annapolis, which is Maryland's capital, where I'd been an intern in college, to work for the organization I had once interned with. I became the Associate Director for Social Concerns of the Maryland Catholic Conference. A state Catholic conference, for my Catholic listeners, is roughly equivalent to the USCCB. It's a regional conference of Catholic bishops that come together for a common purpose, generally to advocate for the Church's public policy interests at the state level. The Church has many such interests. Some are institutional, such as legislation that would affect Catholic parishes, charities, or schools. But most are functions of the Church's social teaching, the idea that Catholics are to defend the dignity of the human person. That can take the form, for instance, of opposing abortion and the death penalty, or supporting programs that provide assistance to the poor and marginalized, or defending religious liberty, or safeguarding policies meant to assure justice for the immigrant. It's a lot. The Church speaks out on a wide range of issues across the political spectrum. It partners with Democrats on some, Republicans on others. It angers Democrats on some, Republicans on others. It is very interesting work. So at any rate, there I was, finally working in politics, check, and religion, check, in the state where I had a long family history and a fair number of political connections, check. But here's the thing. My Republican self was going to have to take her college thesis seriously because she was about to work with a whole lot of Democrats. In signing up to advocate for the Church's social concerns, issues regarding poverty, immigration, and health care, I became a lobbyist on what felt to me like the other side. I couldn't have known it then, but I just received one of the greatest gifts of my life. That job stretched me. It challenged me in more than just a professional sense. Not only were there a couple hundred legislators to get to know, agencies, programs, policies, and advocacy organizations to become familiar with, relationships to understand, but there was the heart work, too, the work of grappling with problems I'd never thought much about, the work of investing my heart in issues that were more complicated and weighty than I'd ever realized. Over the course of the five years I spent as a lobbyist, as an advocate, my world opened up. But then in 2010, when I had my first child, I gave up the job I loved. I traded it in for the stay-at-home mom job of unceasing diapers and dishes and dinner making. And I went on to have five children in seven years. Today, my husband and I have three boys and two girls, ages 10, 8, 6, 4, and 2. I still stay home with them full-time. Yes, I have my hands full. But of course I've learned and grown so much in this decade, too. My world, opened up back then, has grown ever richer and deeper as I've mothered my children and gotten to know other women doing the same, and consumed so much of the news, and watched the rise of social media, and developed my prayer life. I am a news junkie. I'm nearly always reading or listening to newspapers, magazines, radio, or podcasts, especially those that pertain to politics. So while I have been physically home for most of the past decade, my mind has traveled all over the world, 
It has walked the halls of Congress. It has monitored international conflicts. It has listened to voters from Detroit to Oklahoma. I exaggerate. But hey, I'm a daydreamer, a wanderer. I have a tendency to live in my head, thinking through the problems of the world while my hands are sunk deep in sinks full of dirty dishes. For seven years, I've been writing up some of those thoughts at my blog, called These Walls. You can find it at thesewallsblog.com. There, and in another blog I briefly wrote for my archdiocesan newspaper, I have written on politics and society, motherhood and family life. My writing has been one of the many iterations of what I now see as my life's work, inhabiting the space where politics and religion meet and inviting others to join me there. I am hoping, obviously, that this podcast will be another, better way to do that. I feel that for years I have been doing a lot of thinking about these things and not a lot of doing, and it's about time I do more doing. This podcast is my attempt to do. All right. Now, on to the ideas that guide my political thinking. You might wonder why I'd want to kick off a new podcast by launching into something of a political treatise. Well, it's because I've come to realize that my drivers, when it comes to politics, are pretty different from most people's, at least in this day and age. Today, our society seems to treat politics like a massive, nasty game of -of tug-of-war. But I don't think it has to be, or even should be, viewed that way. I think politics is best viewed by stepping back a bit, by quieting ourselves down, and by recognizing that politics is fundamentally four things and can be a fifth. Politics is complex. It's personal. It is a responsibility. It is moral. And it, wait for it, can even be a spiritual exercise. Let me explain. Number one, politics is complex. Here in the United States, it can be easy for us to think of politics as a simple this or that, left or right, liberal or conservative, Democrat or Republican, good or bad. But underneath this series of dichotomies lies a complex web of ideas and personalities and history. Prepare yourself for a bit of a word salad here. I promise it won't last long. So today's Republicans consider themselves conservative, but those of a few years ago would balk at some of the policies advanced by today's so-called conservatives. And the Republicans of a hundred years ago weren't conservative at all. They were progressives. Today's progressives, of course, are most likely Democrats. But the Democrats of a hundred years ago were clearly conservatives, and the Democrats of 50 or 60 years ago were a mix of conservatives and progressives, as were the Republicans. And what do the terms conservative or progressive or liberal mean anyhow? What are we conserving? What are we progressing toward? What are we being liberal with? Those words all require context to be properly understood. Even within the political parties, we see combinations of positions that make little sense at first glance. One party favors government interference in Area X, but not Area Y. The other resists it in Area X, but not Y. And what are the parties anyway? Do they bring people together based on ideology, identity, or is it interest? What do we do when our ideology aligns us with one and our identity with the other? What do we do when our interests are split? What about third parties? How much loyalty do we owe to any of them? Sorry for the word salad, but I hope you get my point. We can't write off politics as a simple tug between two sides. 
Rather, we've got to face up to the complexity of our politics. We should pay attention to our political struggles and seek to understand what feeds them. We should try to answer the underlying questions. In this podcast, I want to talk about specific issues and broad ones, the timely and the timeless. From the presidential race to the concept of executive power, from policies regarding immigration, mental health, and abortion, to the question of how much a government should be doing anyway. Number two, politics is personal. To back up for just a moment, what do I mean when I say politics? Politics is the mechanism by which we, as a people, determine how we want our government to function and what we want it to achieve. It is the struggle, the argument, the push and pull, the trade-off, the way we work out our differences so that our collective goals can become reality. Politics is most explicitly done, of course, by those who we elect to public office and by the professionals they rely on to help them do their work. It is done by campaigns, by political parties, by interest groups and advocacy organizations. But politics is also personal. You and I engage in it, too. When we vote, we get a direct say in who gets to be part of the decision-making process. When we reach out to legislators and those running for public office, we get a shot at persuading them. When we donate our time or money, we get to further the cause or candidate we prefer. But perhaps most importantly, when we speak out, we get the opportunity to influence our fellow citizens. We engage in what we might call the little politics. It is made up of the little things we sometimes overlook. The conversations with friends and neighbors, the posts on social media, the dialogue in comment boxes, the articles we pass along. Little politics is the small-scale political engagement you and I do with those we encounter. These engagements, little though they are, add up. They are the waters that form the rising tide, the stones that contribute to the landslide. They affect the people who affect the votes that affect the politicians. And they are something that each of us can and should take responsibility for. Number three, politics is a responsibility. Why should we participate in politics in general, and the little politics in particular? Most basically, we should participate in politics because politics has a real impact on our lives and the lives of others. Policies and programs do real things that affect real people. Politicians make real decisions that affect real people. If there's something we can do to affect positive change in those policies, programs, and politicians, we should do it. We should also participate in politics, and especially the little politics, because tenor matters. The feeling around politics, whether it's approached in love or fear, with reason or with wild imaginings, matters. Politicians read tenor and seek to match themselves to it. A rabid political base will generate rabid politicians. There is an entire industry right now that profits from whipping people up into a frenzy over politics. Something has got to counter that phenomenon with a more measured, loving, logical, curious, and truth-driven approach to political dialogue. That something should start with us. It should start with you and me. At the end of the day, we should participate in politics because we have a duty to add goodness to the world and because our politics is in need of our goodness. Number four, politics is moral. Some 20 years ago, Vaclav Havel, 
a writer and dissident who, at the end of the Cold War, became the last president of Czechoslovakia and the first president of the Czech Republic, published a collection of his speeches and writings in a book called The Art of the Impossible. The book's subtitle was Politics as Morality in Practice. Politics as Morality in Practice. Since I first read that phrase nearly two decades ago, it has drilled itself into my subconscious. Morality, of course, is a framework of values and principles we apply to our conduct in order to do good. It's easy enough to see the importance of morality in our personal conduct, in our relationships with our family, friends, colleagues, even the strangers we encounter as we go about our lives. But we each also have a public role. We have the ability, especially in a democracy, to affect the society in which we live. And just as we should aim to act morally in our personal conduct, so should we aim to act morally in our public conduct. But on both counts, personal and public, what we do reveals something about what we hold dear. Our personal behavior says something about our actual morality. And our public political behavior does too. Our behavior is our morality put into practice. Our politics is our morality put into practice. Our actual morality, as opposed to some lofty theoretical morality we might aspire to. I think we should recognize that and let the idea change us. Too often, we write off politics as dirty. We push it aside. We think of it as something for someone else because we don't want to sully ourselves with its grime. Or worse, we go along with the idea. We support politicians we consider corrupt and policies we consider problematic because we have come to believe there is no other way. In assuming that politics is dirty, we have given it permission to be so. In this podcast, I want to shift course. I want to hold our politicians and ourselves to a higher standard. I want to recognize the moral implications of politics, both in terms of its broad official activity and in the small, more mundane ways you and I participate in it. Number five, politics can be a spiritual exercise. All right, I know this one sounds wacky. It sounds over the top, but bear with me. We all know that politics can be nasty. And we know that in this day and age, with the rise of social media, we non-politicians are able to participate in the political nastiness like never before. I think most of us must also know, deep down, that the vitriol is bad for our country. But do we stop to consider how spiritually harmful it is to those who engage in it? And further, do we stop to consider how we might approach politics in a more spiritually healthy, even helpful and holy way? This is a concept I've grown into over years of praying through my political struggles. Prayer that led me to reconsider my positions on some controversial issues, that gave me strength to power through difficult conversations with legislators, that helped me speak words of love to people who were angry with me, that nudged me to try to understand the people I was angry with. For me, the exercise begins with an examination of conscience, a really thorough questioning of my political thinking and conduct. It then moves on to four basic principles which I try to put into practice. 1. Value people properly. Value the people who will be affected by whatever policy or program or issue I'm considering. Value the people I'm engaging with and anyone who might be watching. 
value the people I disagree with. 2. Be motivated by love, not by anger, resentment, annoyance, or the desire to win. Be motivated by love for the cause and those affected by it. Be motivated by love for the people I'm addressing. 3. Try to persuade. If I'm going to speak publicly on political matters, it should be because I'm trying to change minds and hearts. So I should try to use messages that will resonate with the people I'm aiming for. Broadcasting my position in a way that's not persuasive, that's only intended to signal my position, preach to the choir, or make myself feel better, is not constructive. It is vanity. 4. Think about the long term. There are few, if any, real ends in politics. There's always another election, another bill, another budget on the horizon. So the ends can never justify the means. The means are all we have. I've got to pursue just goals justly and encourage others to do the same. By doing so, we can be constructive even when we don't immediately rack up a win. We can build up, move forward, bring light. We can pursue the true and the good. And we can keep our eyes on the future, to the places our policies and programs and politicians might take us. This exercise, examining my conscience and trying to put the four principles into practice, it colors my life. It impacts, day in and day out, how I orient myself to politics and to the people I am politically engaged with. And it is something I struggle with all the time. It is not natural to me. I am hot-headed. I am sensitive. I am defensive. I want to win. But, by the grace of God or the honing of my conscience over all those years of prayer and all those years of trying, I have finally come to see that acting justly when it comes to politics in kindness and love for those I encounter, that can do more than make me nice. It can draw me closer to God. All right. Those were the five ideas that guide my political thought and which will therefore influence this podcast. Before we conclude, allow me to make two brief notes. One, for many of us, our morality is intimately tied up with our religious beliefs. I am a devout Catholic, and I acknowledge that my religious beliefs will affect how I approach the topics we'll undertake in this podcast. That said, I don't intend for this to be a Catholic podcast, per se. I intend it to be for anyone who is interested in considering politics in a moral context. My morality is informed by my Catholic faith. But of course, your morality might be informed by another faith, or by a more secular philosophy on how to live well and do good. Regardless of where we're coming from, we all have moral frameworks available to us. And two, I want you to know that I intend to talk to people with whom I disagree. People are complicated. Backgrounds can be complicated. Viewpoints can be complicated. I'm not looking to talk to a series of people whose political opinions or moral or religious convictions mirror my own. I look forward to interesting discussions in which I can learn something whether that something shifts my own opinion or simply gives me a better understanding of where someone else is coming from. Now I'm going to return to Vaclav Havel for a few moments. And if you're interested in the idea of a moral politics, please do check out the book I referenced earlier, 
The Art of the Impossible, Politics as Morality in Practice. In his speech to the Council of Europe on May 10, 1990, Havel said, Throughout my life, whenever I have thought aloud about public affairs, about civic, political, and moral matters, some reasonable person has inevitably pointed out, in the name of reason, that I too should be reasonable, should put aside my wild ideas, and accept once and for all that nothing can change for the better because the world is divided forever into two parts. Both these half-worlds are content with this division and neither wants to change. It is pointless to behave according to one's conscience, because no one can change anything, and those who do not want war should just keep quiet. Havel speaks, of course, of the division between East and West during the Cold War. He goes on to describe the thoughts and actions of himself and his fellow dissidents, noting, We thought, and hence we also dreamed. Later, reflecting on the fall of the Iron Curtain and the successful establishment of democracy in Czechoslovakia, Havel says, We must not be afraid of dreaming the seemingly impossible if we want the seemingly impossible to become a reality. Personally, I don't think this is merely a lesson for post-Cold War Europe. I think that we here in 21st century America, in the midst of our own divided politics, two half-worlds content with division, we could stand to dream a little. To those who will consider my goals for this podcast too dreamy, too naive or unrealistic or weak, well, you've got plenty of other options. There are so very many podcasts out there that treat politics like a game, like a wrestling match, a shouting match, like showboat entertainment. I'm here to do something different. Thank you for listening to this, my very first episode of More Than Politics. I sure hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help, I'm sure, is the best way to let others know about the podcast. On our next episode, I'll be talking with my friend John Miller, an award-winning journalist and filmmaker who, as a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal for 13 years, reported from over 40 countries. John and I will be talking about the moment we find ourselves in, both here and abroad, the coronavirus pandemic, the economic uncertainty it has unleashed, and the movement against racial injustice that has followed the death of George Floyd. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. My name is Julie Varner Walsh. I'm your host. You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at thesewallsblog.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. Thanks for listening. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.